Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50% to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash trip for free shipping and 365-day returns. Everyone knows therapy is great for solving problems. But getting therapy has its own problems, too. Like finding the right therapist, fitting into their schedule, and, of course, the cost. Well, BetterHelp can solve those problems. It's totally online and built around your schedule. It's surprisingly affordable, too. Connect with a credentialed therapist by phone, video, or online chat, all from the comfort of your home. Visit BetterHelp.com to learn more and save 10% on your first month. That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P. You're listening to Scoopy Radio with Brandon Robinson. Scoopy Welcome to Radio. another edition of Heavy Life with Scoopy. I am Brandon Scoopy Robinson, senior writer here at Heavy.com. So it was a party when you got NBA legends in the building. No different here is we got Watson Elementary, my dear Watson, Earl Watson, live and direct. What's going on, sir? Man, I appreciate you having me on, man. This is dope. Yeah, man, for sure. Listen, uh, when I think of you, I got a lot of Laker followers uh, yeah. on Twitter. And... Uh, I think they, they they bunch you in with LA because you play for UCLA. Mm-hmm. Um, that experience as a Bruin, does it compare to anything else? Um, that experience as a Bruin is hard because when you think about UCLA and you think about, I went there in 97, they won in 95, Coach Wooden was still alive. So the legacy is different now than it was then. The legacy then was at an all-time high, I feel like. All fresh up a national championship. So entering UCLA with Baron Davis, we had this sense of expectation that if it was championship or nothing, and we didn't win, so we always felt like we we left with nothing, but really we left with a lot. Yeah, yeah, man. I I, I remember paying attention to to uh, UCLA um, back when I was watching um, the Jay Z backstage tour, and I remember there were scenes where Jay had on a Baron Davis UCLA jersey. Um, and so I kind of dialed in and saw like how much you guys were kind of futuristic to what today's NBA is, particularly because you had two point guards on the floor at the same time. The only time I really remember that in the NBA like that was like Dumars and Isaiah. Yeah, and you know what? That's funny you say that because that's what Coach Lavin sold us on. So Baron Davis and I met in Nike camp in 1996. And we happened to be on the same team and we ended up just joining forces and we played so well together that, you know, Jim Herrick, who was the head coach at the time, and Steve Lavin started to recruit both of us. And we linked up and we always knew we wanted to go to school together. But we kept it under wraps and mm-hmm. Lab just saw the vision. Herrick saw the vision and, you know, we rolled the dice and kind of just went to the same place and the rest was history. That's real. I mean, you're from Kansas City, correct? 
Yes. But then, like, L.A., they, I think people think you're from L.A. People do think I'm from L.A. It's because L.A. is so big, and um, the, the embrace I had with Los Angeles and Baron Davis was family was like none other. And I lived, actually lived in South Central with BD for like three and a half months, almost four months before we got into school. So I kind of got a quick education on the politics of LA. Okay. You know, you know and it kind of like, it kind of like it cemented me in, you know, the actual community because when, you, when kids come in to Los Angeles, not from LA, they get Westwood and you get the movie version on television of what LA is. But I had a chance to get like a little small appetizer on, on real LA on real LA, and from that point on, I was forever in love. You are a Missouri representative, just like Ty Lue, correct? T. Lewis from um, T. Lewis from New Mexico, Missouri, which is closer to St. Louis. He moved to Kansas City, which is Raytown, Missouri, probably his junior year. But me, I was born and raised in Kansas City. I'm on the Kansas side, so when you think about. KC, you think about a city that's split up by a river, one side is Kansas, one side is Missouri. And my radius of neighborhood is Janelle, Monet, and Maurice Green. We're all from KCK. So we call it the dot, dot truth. And we kind of ride with that. It's like San Francisco and Oakland. Like we would be the Oakland version versus San Francisco would be the KCMO version. Uh, what is the, I, I mean this respectfully, I don't come at people's hoods, but like when I hear people from, you know, you hear people not New York, not L.A., not Chicago, not Atlanta. You think of towns like if you ever saw the movie In Too Deep with Omar Epps. Remember that scene when they were like, bro, what is there to do in Akron? Y'all be like selling corn. Like, like what? What did what people know Kansas City for barbecue? Yeah. Yeah. And then uh, 18th and, and Vine, which is on the Missouri side, which is. You know, um, the birthplace was jazz along with New Orleans. It went back and forth for Charlie Parker. And then you think about the Negro Leagues. Uh, you think of Jackie Robinson. It's a lot of it's a lot of history here. And where I'm from is actually where the slaves went across the Missouri River for freedom. And we have, you know, the Underground Railroad, which is underground caves that led them to freedom from my county. And my county is where all the slaves settled with Native Americans to kind of like for freedom. When you look at today's NBA, um, number one, you yourself had longevity. Just looking at your profile, you were the 39th overall pick in the 2001 NBA draft um, by way of the Seattle Supersonics. And, and so when I look at second rounders, you think of guys like Gilbert Arenas, um, who, you know, despite missteps, he was efficient. You look at guys who, who had lasting power. How much of a chip on your shoulder did you have coming into the league being a second rounder? Uh, you know what? The truth is, for me, it all happened so quick. At the time I got drafted, Bob Myers, who is now the GM of Golden State, was a young agent. He was my agent. Mm -hmm. And Gil went in the same second round with me, with Mimino Core, and we had some really good second rounders. Uh, for me, it was about just seizing the moment, winning the moment, because it was so overwhelming. Mm -hmm. I think there's more education now for guys coming into the league with you know, skill development and nutrition. But back then, man, I went to a vet team with GP and Van Baker, and Nate McMillan was the head coach. Um, our assistant coach was Dwayne Casey, and it was like old school, elbow to the face, be ready to box in the locker room, NBA, and it just created a lot of grit. 
And I was proud to be a part of that era that actually was ending while I was coming in with like the GP and the John Stockton and the MJ back again with the Wizards. When you talk about Gary Payton, I've heard people tell stories about Gary and, and you know, smack talk. And he talks so fast, you'd be like, huh? What'd you say? Like, I've heard his story about he couldn't say the word surround sound, so he called it surround round. <laughs> when you look at guys like Gary Payton, um, do you think in this era it's fair to, to, to name Patrick Beverly as a comparison? Like, if not him, then who? That's not even close. Um, and that's no disrespect to Pat. And I think Pat will be on the same page. Uh, there is no GP in this era. There is no uh, six, four and a half, six, five point guard who was giving people 60 in college and not shooting threes. Mm. Right? Who can put you on the post, who can lock you up, who talk crazy to you, who had that entire Oakland mentality and swag. I remember. In 2001, when I got drafted, and I, you know, I, got, I had a little escalate. I thought I was fresh. And then I pulled up in the parking lot, and GP had a G-Wagon in 2001. Like, I, I, I didn't even know what that was. I just thought it was futuristic, and he was already sitting on 22s and 24s. And his whole – you think of the NBA, you think about, you know, um, the culture and pushing the culture forward and – the dress and the swag and everything that comes around with the details of of black culture, GP was on that times ten. So yeah. I don't know, I don't know who has that right now, that persona, and who can carry it, but also talk it and live it. Mm. No, that's real. That, that Seattle Sonics team to me, you talked about Vin Baker, straight for Sean Kemp came in, um, Nate McMillan, all those guys. What was Seattle like at that point? Uh, for me, I was too immature to appreciate Seattle. I'm coming straight from L.A., sunshine, and so many options. And Seattle was, you know, complete opposite with rain every day. And um, just amazing people. But their their nightlife and their social activity was different. Being older, you can appreciate Seattle with the wine and the food and you know, the loungy kickback and the, 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 the swag and the people are still vibrant. But socially, it was just awkward for me that I, I did not appreciate until I got older. And you think about that time, how GP ignited, similar to the way Kobe did in L.A., GP ignited such a young crop of basketball players from Seattle who we see are became the superstar stars of today, like Jamal Crawford, Isaiah Thomas, Zach Levine, Brandon Roy, just that whole era was just tremendous and nothing but tons of respect for the whole Seattle basketball community. When you talk about culture, you talk about um, chilling. I'm looking at that top shelf back there, brother. (laughs) COVID is doing well for you. (laughs) You know, I'm not a big drinker, man. I'm more of a wine guy, but I got uh, this this slick vodka. My homeboy from um, high school uh, he started his own vodka company, and I always got to show love to the people in the hood who are trying to do something positive because we all know it's easy to do the wrong thing. Mm-hmm. So for them doing something positive and pushing something legal for me is always love from the way I dress is always my people stuff and the dot and KC. And then just any product they have, I always make sure it's visible for anyone to, you know, enjoy or, you know, be interested in. You talk about Seattle, you talk about the guys that were influenced by the Sonics, uh, Rainer Beach, uh, Jamal Crawford, Nate Robinson. 
um, and, and others, Isaiah Thomas as, as well. I was reading something the other day. Um, it talked about how Nate Rob, well, excuse me, Jamal Crawford uh, was working, serving food at the old arena and kind of, he would take forever for him to bring the food to seats because he was actually enjoying the basketball uh, that was being played. Um, and to me, that's vintage Jamal. I know Jamal. I guess my question is related to Seattle is like, from a basketball standpoint, I feel like, um, and from a sports perspective, everybody was drunk off of the, the King Griffey Jr. because he was so great. Um, what do you think the lasting legacy of Seattle Sonics basketball actually is? Um, the lasting legacy is Gary Payton, Slick Watts, uh, Lenny Wilkins, uh, bringing us to Ray Allen, Nate McMillan, Dwayne Casey, uh, Howard Schultz, Starbucks, and Kevin Durant, and being drafted by, you know, the last draft pick, Russ, top pick was Russell Westbrook. So you have that legacy of just great basketball. And it's unfortunate that there's not a team in Seattle. And I believe, and hopefully soon, they can work out an arena deal that can actually attract another NBA team because there's no place like Seattle in basketball in the history. And it's the cornerstone of the NBA. I literally just got a text message from my homeboy, your homeboy, Brevin Knight. He just texted me. He said, I'm glad you got my boy on. <laughs> Brev, man, he's uh, Brev is a, a master at the point. And he is one of the most intelligent basketball role models there is. Talking about a Stanford graduate, mm -hmm. uh, NBA longevity, a master at the point in the game. And he he's articulate with the game, calling the game. He is what kids should look at when they say, I want to be a basketball player. He's the basketball player you should look at because basketball is only such a short window. You want to make sure you have longevity beyond the game and stay in the vein of just talking and, you know, unpacking hoops and Brev is that guy for me. He's always big bro. Perfect segue. When I was in college, I was a freshman at Eastern University in St. David's, Pennsylvania. Uh, my freshman year, NBA Live, nobody in my dorm was checking me because NBA Live 2004, you, Jason Williams, Pal Brevin Knight, Shane Battier had the thing on lock as it related. Like, this was the PlayStation 2 where you had to plug the attachment in the back to get the roster updates. Do you remember that? Hey, uh, I'm not a big video game guy until early and recently. Um, I remember the whole NBA Live and then eventually 2K segment, but the Memphis days for me, man, were so legendary. You're talking about the roster you just named, Bonzi Wells, James Posey, Showmouth Swift. Rest in peace to my big bro, Lorenzo Wright, uh, White Chocolate, uh, Hubie Brown, Lionel Hollins, Jerry West. One point, Chuck Daly was there. And you Are cannot. You yeah, in, in the front office. And at one point, you cannot ever forget uh, Three Six Mafia, like my, who became like my big bros, like DJ Paul and Juicy J. Like, yeah. you know, like when you tap into a city, you have to have respect for that city because. You know, the culture moves different in every city, no matter where you're from. So for me, I always wanted to pay my respects. So when I had a chance to hook up with them, it was like, yo, like, I need that rite of passage to move through this city. This is Memphis. This is real. And they provide me with that rite of passage. 
But those Memphis days, man, the pyramid to eventually the FedEx Forum and what we did and how we created a culture of grit and grind. Um, I'm forever grateful for those days. And unfortunately, I had to leave to take more money because it's a business. But if I could, I would have stayed there forever. Yeah, that team, that that 04, 03, 04 team, um, Brevin just texted me back. He said, little bro, nothing but love. We had some great defensive battles with Memphis. Um, I got to ask this. You look at Pau Gasol. Um, he's not retired yet. How cool would it be to see him grand open? Today's Jay-Z's birthday. Grand opening, grand closing as a member of the Lakers. I think that would be dope, but I don't know if Pau Gasol want to deal with practice every day. Like the body has this thing where it's like, nah, bro, I'm tapping out. So if Powell could do it and to play with Mark, which is interesting, Mark is now back to the team that he was originally with. Remember, they got traded for each other. I think it would be kind of hilarious. And Mark was actually a kid back in those days, just playing high school basketball, coming to the games, and there's no way I thought he would be the player he is today. But those genes, man, you can't deny the DNA. Not at all. Uh, when you look at the Memphis Grizzlies now, they have John Morant, they have Jaron Jackson Jr., they have uh, Jonas Valanciunas. Uh, they have a lot of raw talent. What did you make of this season, uh, this season's Memphis team? Uh, reflecting on my great teachers like Hubie Brown and making that jump into the playoffs, they did exactly what they were supposed to do the season before. Uh, fight for it, get as close as possible. And what Hubie will always say, getting into the playoffs is the hardest part. And then once you get there, it's can you score and have game in the playoffs. So they have to get there first, and it happens in steps. But Ja Morant is so talented and beyond, and he he's his own player. He has the ability to do something special for that team that I think, and I know the city of Memphis is going to forever, you know, protect and just put up on a pedestal. Yeah, that's real. Um, you made mention of Isaiah Thomas. We're talking about current NBA player Isaiah Thomas, although we know Hall of Famer Isaiah Thomas is a G in and of itself. Um, what team in your mind makes the most sense? Where does he fit? If a team, if, if Nas made a song called If I Ruled the World, if you ruled the world for a day, what team fits him best? Portland. Why? Coming off the bench behind Dame and CJ and having the ability to be in the Pacific Northwest and put up buckets in a short amount of minutes, which he's capable of doing, which allows him to not only continue to get healthy and protect his strides being healthy, but it also gives Portland a scoring punch that I think they desperately need. And when you think about Portland, they have two dominant scores, but they've never had a third. And you cannot win in the NBA without a third dominant scorer who can get you anywhere from 12 to 20 any given night off the bench. And I learned that from Pop, which is the only reason why he moved Ginobili to the bench to have a third dominant score at all times. If not Boston, oh, excuse me, if not Portland, would Boston make sense? A return to Boston. Um, you know, this is a business, and I think one thing that these teams, being on both sides from playing to coaching, have to realize is the way that relationship ended, I'm not sure if it ended on the right note. 
Sure. Like you, it's something like you, uh, players have human emotions and what he sacrificed to play and continue to play on that hip for the Celtics was not rewarded financially um, for their, you know, right or wrong reasons medically. And if that relationship was not healed, then it becomes a tough conversation to eventually reunite those two businesses together. And that's what makes the NBA really unique. It's all about relationships. It's really not about your city or how good your team is. Do you have the relationship with certain players to build, you know, a sustainable product? That's real. Um, you uh, talked about the Blazers. I look at Lillard. I look at McCollum. It's kind of like that Baron and Earl Watson type of situation. Two guards. Yeah, on steroids. Elaborate. Those two guys, and Baron could do it, but I could do it on that level. Those two guys can give you 30 to 40 any given time. Dame can go for 60. Um, you know, it's, it's interesting. When we were in college and early in the league, you know, I had, I've had had AU team since 2001 until the last, until three years ago, Earl Watson leading the West Coast in CMA 76ers in Kansas City. And not CMA, it's Kansas City 76ers in Kansas City. CMH was my team. Mm-hmm. When I grew up. But when you talk about my mid-20s, around 2005, 2006, it was a group of young players who all they wanted to do was skill development and shoot threes and dunk. And we were raised on the mid-range game. Like, you have mid-range game, play the elbows, play the post. But those players are today superstars. So they have a unique skill of combos off the dribble beyond the arc that only today's kids can eventually mimic or attempt to mimic. No, that that makes a lot of sense <clears throat> when you look at today's basketball because I think even from a perspective of, like, I look at Brooklyn, I look at um, Spencer Dinwiddie, I look at Kyrie Irving, I think that they're if, – if, assuming everybody's where they're supposed to be and current team, I think that those two together in the second quarter are going are gonna to wreak havoc. I think that when I look at Mark Jackson and I look at Rod Strickland back when they were Knicks, I asked Rod that same question. Imagine if you guys had stuck together. Imagine if you guys played in that era. I feel like, to me, that point guard taboo is kind of like the taboo of, what was it, Patrick Ewing and, and, and or was it Matumbo and Morning or some two centers in Georgetown not playing together? It seemed so taboo then. But it's welcome now. Yeah. And I and I and I think um Derek Rose is a guy who I think was that bridge builder between small guards that could still score. I look at Stephon Marbury as, as a guard who people called selfish. Do you find it interesting that when in today's NBA game, people went from, as you mentioned, looking at John Stockton, who was a distributing point guard, or people looked at Jason Kidd, who was a triple double threat. Do you find it interesting that the guards who were like the Marbury's are now the guards that are running today's NBA team? Um, it is it is funny you bring that up, and I never looked at it through that through that lens. But um, imagine stuff in today's game. Hmm. He was something like today's game. It's like nasty, even even AI, you know, and. Um, so you talk about players who could play in any era. Um, there's, there's, I think any player can play in any era. 
because if they grew up in that era, they're going to adapt to the style of game of that era. So I think it's a wasted conversation. But when you talk about games that can trans- transcend without adapting, that's when you talk about, you know, imagine Baron in this era. You know, it's like like he was ridiculous with his size, qu- speed, and quickness and strength. And it's hard to get a point guard that has all three. And to me, you think about speed, you think about Allen Iverson and true point guard who played a position, not the two, Tony Parker, speed. You think about speed and strength and power, you think about Baron Davis. You think about power, you think about Jason Kidd with speed. So you got all these in athleticism, Baron Davis. So you got these unique gifts, which is what LeBron brings to the table as a point forward at six, nine and a half or six, ten. Who knows with the LeBron shoe? Like, you know what I mean? He just brings that to the table at a taller, bigger scale that makes him dominant. Which Magic Johnson <clears throat> reminds you of LeBron? Magic in his prime and when he came in in 79 and won championships or Magic when he came back in the 90s? Well, I had a chance to play against Magic in the 90s at UCLA and he was still winning and dominating the courts over everyone. All the Laker teams, which was Shaq, Kobe, Derek Fisher, uh, just that entire crew, that entire just three-peat teams. Magic was running everything in the UCLA men's gym. But I think where Magic's, where LeBron separates from Magic is his athleticism. Like that is, imagine Magic with Michael Jordan athleticism and then you have LeBron. Which gene, or I don't know if it's gene, but so when I look at Jason Kidd and I look at Gary Payton, I feel like LeBron has flashes of both of them, except he's taller and he has a, He's he has flashes of Michael. He has flashes of Charles Barkley. He has flashes of Penny. He has flashes of Scottie Pippen. I really feel like he's a throwback as somebody we've never seen before. But I still go back to point guard skills. Point guard wise, does his skill set remind you more of Gary Payton or Jason Kidd? Um. So this is we about to unpack a lot right here. Um. Doesn't remind me of Gary Payton because Gary Payton played out the post. Mm-hmm. LeBron barely plays out of the post, but I think he could dominate the post. Um, Gary scored better on the block. Gary was a menace on that left block mm-hmm. with the up and unders and the left hand scoops and backing you down, and he punished you on that left block. When you think about passing, he's more of a cerebral player and a passer like a Jay Kidd because Jay Kidd had the ability to play in front of the rim and stare at the rim. Right. Right? GP was staring at half court and everything to the left shoulder. Uh, and Kidd played out of the post too, but he could also play above the arc and creating plays. Mm-hmm. And that's where you get the Jay Kidd and LeBron type of like comparison. But to me, Jay Kidd, was still a more polished point guard where LeBron is just the better player and could see every pass like J. Kidd. But it's just the passes that J. Kidd can make. LeBron doesn't have to really make all those passes. He just jump over you. So you have that advantage of both ways. It's like pick your poison. That's real. Um, when I look at um, today's NBA, 
Joel Santana came out with an album called What the Game's Been Missing. Um, I really think that was fortunate. I think that was uh, prophetic because I look at today's NBA game and they're hiring point guards um, a lot to become head coaches. And then I think the next crop are going to come like Rajon Rondo is going to be a head coach. <clears throat> I feel like when you play, or excuse me, when you transition from playing to coaching, you were around a time where Derek Fisher was finding his legs as a head coach with the Knicks. Jason Kidd was finding his legs, you know, the Nets, the Milwaukee, um, Monty Williams. He's not a point guard, but was finding his legs. I kind of feel like um, you got an early start after Jeff Hornacek was let go with the Suns, but losing and some other things limited that. Do you? I guess my question is: Do you still have a desire to be a head coach in the NBA? Um, see, to, to be a head coach in the NBA is a very strategic business. Um, losing to me is. Coaches in, the, and coaches in the league only control winning and losing if you have a roster that's prepared to win. Right. The young team that's not prepared to win, then it becomes a business to build draft picks. So you're going to lose. So you got to – there's so many variables to that. Uh, for me to still coach, it's innate in me, man. Like I started chopping the game of basketball at an early age, at the age of 18, with Coach John Wooden. And then I get drafted to Nate McMillan, Dwayne Casey. And then I go to Memphis, and I'm with Jerry West, Hubie Brown, Lionel Hollins, Fratello. Then I play for George Carl, Doug Moe. And then I'm with Jim O'Brien, Frank Vogel, Larry Bird, and Jerry Sloan, Terry Stotts, uh, Dick Harder, um, all of the great, amazing coaches I've played for, and I'm missing a lot. Then I start coaching under the Spurs with Popovich, and I never, no one ever wants to be an NBA lifer, but then you get all this information and the beauty of basketball, which I think basketball players really do well, is they know they have to give it away. And for me, it's not about coaching, it's about teaching, because it's a lot of coaches, but it's few teachers. And you have to learn to be a teacher from a teacher. So um, I've learned from the greatest teachers to ever do it, I feel like, Hall of Fame teachers. And for me, I have to continue to teach until I can no longer walk or run. And that's when, you know, the game is no longer up to me to give away. Can I ask you a question? Yeah, you've been asking me a lot of questions. <laughs> Why didn't you and Eric Bledsoe work out? All right, so here we go. This, this is when you start to unpack what's true and false. Okay. Me and Eric Bledsoe never had confrontation. Okay. The Suns controlled that confrontation. And there's an article that was released recently that came from a source that was involved in that entire um, Suns little era of years. Uh, Bled can tell his own story, but for me, I was always a problem fixer. Sure. Right? So Bled wanted an early extension because he was forced to sit the previous season because of the business of basketball. Sure. So for me, I wanted to make sure that Bled, the front office and ownership understood that it's a business for everyone and it's a way to calm all personalities and keep the peace. 
So if you read the article, it talks about how I was given an ultimatum to either fire my agent at that time, which was Clutch, who represented Bled. So it didn't make sense how we would have controversy or be let go. And for the culture, I'm not about to fire a black agent because ownership demanded it. I just have to take my lumps and losses and you got to check my DNA for that. And my DNA is my dad is one of the first African-Americans to integrate the U.S. Army in 1954 as a drill sergeant. So there's no way in hell that I was going to ever let go of an agency to keep my job. And at that point, I had to do what was right. And that was just get fired. But the spin on it was me and Bled and Bled. Bled's never ever said that publicly and so you know journalists know the truth no one really wrote about it and that's just a part of the game but it's the business of basketball the business of basketball can be a pain i remember having a conversation with anthony mason the late anthony mason god bless his soul he said to me when you first make it to the league that first check is about looking out for all the people from your neighborhood people that held you down all that other stuff but that next check is about you, and that's when you can become a little selfish. And with representation, um, you have to find the people that have your best interests at heart and all those other things. Do you remember your first big check? What did you always want that you bought? Man, I'm sitting in it right now. It's, it's my family house, and I bought it for my mom and dad, who has now been together for 51 years. And for me, I needed to get them out of the hood, um, away from gunshots, uh, but get them in a, in a neighborhood where they can sleep in peace, but also stay active in the hood we grew up in and try to create peace. And it's been my greatest investment. And I got them a house and I lived in a little apartment on Mud Island in Memphis, right? And my furniture in my apartment was all rented from uh, whatever, I think maybe Rent-A-Center. And... Mm-hmm. That's how I just grinded it out until I made enough money to eventually buy my own house. But um, it was always my family and my parents were first. That's real. You mentioned Frank Vogel. You played for him as a member of the Indiana Pacers, correct? Yeah, he was an assistant with Jim O'Brien, but you knew he had the potential to be great just by the way he interacted with players. Can you give me an example? Um, So, look, it's no secret that the NBA is predominantly african-american right and if you can't understand the culture you can't coach a team and i don't see how that's ever debated to not being true which is why um when you really start to unpack coaching you start unpacking the front office you start unpacking representation there needs to be more representation beyond the front of the optics of the camera and what i mean by that is the front of the bench is pretty much mixed from black and white but if you go behind the bench, that's where your next head coaches are, the, the, the seat, the row behind. If you go to the front office, it's really limited with African-Americans. And then when you go with representation for coaches, I, I don't know. I don't know if any I don't know, maybe one black coaching agency. And you got to start having that representation. And I think. um uh, Vogel had that ability to connect to the culture. You know, bas- to have a basketball IQ is is brilliant, but to be able to have a basketball IQ and connect to the culture and to understand the culture 
is what makes a great coach. And a lot of people don't really talk about that, but it's true. And if you really study Coach Wooden, you study how he fought for the culture. He refused to play in the Final Four until they started letting African-Americans play in the tournament and stay in the same hotels until the NAACP was like, win it. Win it. Now you got the world watching. You can say exactly how you feel. So you have to understand the culture to be great in, in basketball on any level. You played for John Wooden. You played for um, George Carl. You played for um, Hubie Brown. You were an assistant under Craig, Greg Popovich. Where are they all similar? Um, Coach Wooden was around. I didn't play for Wooden. I played for Lavin. But Wooden was like our GM. He was around every day. Um, I started in the G League with the Spurs and helps help with the LaMarcus Aldridge pitch for free agency. And um, it was an amazing opportunity. The Spurs really prepare you for, you know, understanding their culture and how to be a coach. And it's interesting you bring that up. Um, coach Wooden, uh, uh, here, here's my similar out of all the coaches I've played for. Wooden, Popovich, Sloan, um, were to me the three similar, and Hubie Brown were four similar play uh, coaches where you go, I see the same thing. And that same thing was the ability to connect the culture, the ability to connect to not only black culture, but the new generation. Practice was short. It was an hour 20, hour 30 max. Anything over hour 30 was just a long day, and it just capped at an hour 45. Hubie Brown never went over an hour 20. Uh, Jerry Sloan the same way. And they had the ability to teach the game. And that's why I say all the time, there's a lot of coaches who would run hard, pass the ball, but there's few teachers. And there's only three ways to teach. Some people are verbal, where if you say it, it clicks. Yeah. Right? Some people are walking through the action. Players, they, they understand it when you walk through. And the last one is drawing on the board. Some are great at seeing it drawn up. And you have to teach in all three ways. And that's what I learned from those coaches, that they were able to teach in all three ways that set them apart from every other coach I've ever played for or been around. You said something that stuck out to me. Um, you talked about the pitches, like you, the pitch to Marcus Aldridge in free agency. I, I, I'm, I am the conduit between the fan and the player. And so there's certain conversations I'm not necessarily or meetings I'm not privy to, but you hear about it. I'm curious to know from your perspective, when you're actually pitching, not a trick question, just straight up question. If you're actually pitching to a player in free agency, like I think of he got game where they show Jesus Shuttlesworth and like you, you, the promised land, like like videos like where you recruit people. Yo, do y'all really be recruiting players like that with videos? So check this out. So. It was the first pitch I ever been a part of until I became a head coach. Okay. And then in Phoenix, we signed no one, but we created pitches. Right. And that's when I knew I was about to get fired when they would not sign a free agent. Like, we're about to lose, yo. <laughs> it's a part, <laughs> hey, casualty is a war, right? right. So for me, um, maybe the, the Marcus thing was so crazy because I was just teammates with him the season before in Portland. 
And when I got to San Antonio, preparing me to coach, put me in the G League, and that was an amazing journey. Um, we created and was a part of being a part of developing NBA players, Jermichael Green and John Simmons. Mm-hmm. Cal Anderson went back and forth from NBA to G League. And we lost in the Western Conference Finals one game away to, to the finals. And whoever won the West will win. We won our division. And the whole year I was working on LaMarcus Pitch with Sean Marks, who is now the GM of Brooklyn. And when we started to develop, to develop the pitch, um, I didn't see any value in selling basketball to LaMarcus. Okay. Right? Mm-hmm. How do you get a player to walk away from 30 plus million dollars and take less and root up his whole entire NBA life? That was the biggest question. And for me, I'm kind of giving away uh, my secret sauce, but for me, um, we talk about understanding the culture. Sure. We talk about relationships. I'm 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 black and Mexican. It, it don't get any more minority than that. I'm 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 you know, and you can you can argue this in in the, in all fifty states. I'm looked at I'm looked at twice as like yo. I'm on TV. I'm affected twice as much as anybody. Cages and please don't shoot. You know what I mean? So for me, understanding the culture is easy. But then you talk about relationships. I told Sean Marks. We ain't, we're not going to sell basketball because the Spurs sells itself. You know what you're getting, right? It's like when you go to Starbucks, it should, it should be the same recipe every Starbucks. And right. the taste is the same. What we're going to do is we're going to recruit his mom and understand his children are in Texas. And he also played at UT. So we had that angle. But a week before free agency, I was offered an assistant coaching job with Phoenix. So when I was offered that job, it was a development job and I would develop Eric Bledsoe and then new draft pick Devin Booker. So I walk into the office, I'm about to sign my contract. And this is when I knew I was um, in a unique space. I go, what are you, what is the vision for Eric Bledsoe and Devin Booker? And the only thing only response I had was to get Bledsoe to shoot good from the three-point line. But you need a vision. I just came from the Spurs. They gave me visions and how to succeed and what's not, what's successful and what's not successful with player development. So when I got there, I knew, okay, there's no vision. We're, we're kind of in trouble. Second question was free agency. And I asked them, you know, who's our target in free agency? And it's like our main target is Lamarcus Aldridge. And I was like, oh, cool. I just worked on the pitch with San Antonio. Hmm. And Antonio has regulations how much you could really do because it's team or nothing. I was like, so, um, do you have a pitch? And they were like, no, we don't have a pitch. Now, free agency is a week away. We started our pitch for Lamarcus in last October, November like preparing eight months in advance. So I was like, cool. Um, let's get a meeting with Lamarcus Aldridge, right? So I haven't signed my contract yet. I pull out my phone and this is big in the league and I didn't know this was big at the time. I just text Lamarcus like, you know, I'm with Phoenix now. Can we get a free agency meeting? And the answer was yes. 
So it was Phoenix, Lakers, of course, Portland, San Antonio, and Knicks. And I quickly jumped on the pitch team in Phoenix, and we created a pitch, and I went into the pitch meeting, and we knocked out Portland. We knocked out the Lakers. We knocked out the Knicks. And here you have the Suns and the Spurs in the race for Lamar Lamarcus Aldridge, who was the number one free agent at the time. The power of relationships. Power of relationships and the power of culture. Because to understand black culture, it's not all about money to us. And a lot of people don't realize that you can't buy us. Like you couldn't pay me enough to fire Rich Paul to keep my job. I, I wasn't built like that. I'm built to grind and have grit and grind and get it on my own. If it's not right, I don't want it because, you know, I have to sleep at night. You can't you can't pay a Morris twin enough to trade his brother and keep one still on the team. It's not that way. Like, you know, you got to they're brothers, you know, family come first and everything that we do, regardless of the paycheck. So, you know, the relationships and understanding culture has always been key in the NBA. As my late grandmother would say, learn me something. You, uh, you talked about Sean Marks, uh, probably one of the best chess players in the league. Nobody knew or everybody assumed it was Greg Popovich coming to Brooklyn, but then they thought it was Jason Kidd. You hire Steve Nash. How much of that comes from the Spurs? How much of that is him? Relationships. Sean Marks and Steve Nash have always been close. So when people was in an uproar of, Nash getting the job, it's almost like, no, he's very much capable. And Sean did exactly what he was supposed to do. Hire within his network that's capable. Like, you know, we, we call it put each other on, but you can't put someone on if they're not capable. Or qualified. Yeah, you do. Because really... The greatest teams that I've been a part of in winning and why it's sustainable and not sustainable is the general manager and the coach had a personal friendship. They, they were like-minded. They were both mindful. And they understand when you sit at a table and you talk about NBA and navigating the season and free agency and winning, you got to be able to have tough conversations. And you can't have tough conversations and have resolve if you don't trust the person sitting across from the table or sitting on the same side. So I think uh, Sean did exactly what he was supposed to do because when you sat on that voyage of building something, we're all on the same ship together. We're either going to sink together or we're going we're gonna to ride together and sell. And he did exactly what I would have done. You sound like bad boys. We ride bad boys. We ride together. <laughs> <laughs> it's true. Yes, sir. Yes, sir. What's next for you? Uh, I'm, I'm getting into college, man. College commentating, Pac-12, back to my roots. Um, I'm, I have some things kind of maybe opportunity in the NBA, uh, getting back into just being a part of teams and developing and building. But for me, um, I always say the greatest teacher in life is experience. And for me, I want to be in good situations I want to be in positive spaces and I want something that has sustainability of growing and not just opportunity. Sounds about right. You are a wealth of knowledge. I swear you point guards, man. Yeah. yeah. 
guys are the CEOs and bankers, I tell you. Hey, Brett, Brett was saying it's, it's them pack, which is now the pack 12, but back then them pack, them pack 10 point guards are different, man. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Well, the good news is this. You're off the hot seat. Appreciate it. Appreciate it. <laughs> now I got to text Blair and tell him I heard we have beef. He's going to laugh at that. <laughs> well, you know, I'm right about it, but but it'll be done in a tasteful manner for sure. I, I, um, uh, yeah. Think, um, I think when you when you talk about that whole blood thing, to me, cryptic text messages and more, I think a lot of things can be translated. And the thing is, you guys are creatives. So people that are the fans and even the journalists are consumers of what you say. Yeah. And often, many people aren't blessed like me to have those conversations with y'all. And so over time, it gets revisited and it makes sense. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, so that's it. We ending the broadcast. Everybody, see you. Have a night with Scoop B. Uh, Monday, we got a musical guest. Talk to y'all soon. Have a good weekend. And this is Scoop B Radio saying, you bring the coffee and I'll bring the Dunkin'. Kaboom! Step onto the legendary clay courts of Roland Garros, where the world's best players battle it out at the French Open for a chance to win a Grand Slam title. Tennis Channel Plus is your place to watch. Stream every court from your phone or smart TV live in HD. See the action unfold as legends fight for glory and new rivalries emerge. Daily live coverage begins Monday, May 20th, with match replays on demand so you never miss a moment. From the first serve to the final point, Roland Garros promises unforgettable moments and new chapters in tennis history. Stream now with Tennis Channel Plus to be there when it happens. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. My business used to be weighed down by the complexities of in person payments. Then, Tap to Pay on iPhone and Stripe came along and changed everything. With Tap to Pay on iPhone and Stripe, I streamlined my payment process effortlessly. Now I can accept in-person, contactless payments right from my iPhone. No extra hardware required. What's truly remarkable is how I can cater to all of my customers' payment preferences. Whether they're using cards, Apple Pay, or other digital wallets, Tap to Pay on iPhone and Stripe ensure a smooth checkout experience every time. And it's not just me. Stripe helps businesses of all sizes, from local markets to global retailers, scale quickly and stay agile. To learn how Tap to Pay on iPhone and Stripe can help grow your revenue and reach, visit stripe.com slash tap iPhone.